to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Hope you're having a wonderful week and hope that um, our time uh, looking at this um, season of Advent is something that um, is encouraging and uplifting to your soul and, and, and raising your affections. Uh, we, we've talked, um, I, I think I've brought it out, but also I've talked to a lot of people and we talked about in group the other night how a lot of us didn't grow up in a church where um, the Advent season, as far as doing three or four or five weeks about the Advent, um, we just didn't grow up in that way. So if you grew up in Assembly of God or a, a, a Catholic background, they may have done it in, in the Catholic background, but um, for Assembly of God or a, a Baptist church or a Methodist church, sometimes th- those things were emphasized. So that word Advent just means um, the, the coming of Christ, uh, to where he, he came to the earth. And so um, that, that word used to, I remember I was literally in seminary four or five years before I'd had a class that talked about just specifically the Advent. And I thought it was some kind of foreign word that, you know, I didn't know what it really, I thought it was Catholic or something. And like, well, I guess we just stay away from that. And so, uh, but Advent is just his coming. And so most of us haven't um, had an emphasis on that for an extended period of time. So the whole point through the history of the church was this is a big deal. And, and so remember the history of the church, it wasn't so much about, you know, shopping at Woodland Hills Mall or Tulsa Hills. It wasn't so much about trees and um, the number of houses. Have, have your neighborhoods just like freaked out um, with the number of houses that light up and I know we have more available funds and stuff but like because because I don't see my neighbors up there doing that it's not my neighbors that are up there on the ladders putting lights up like my grandpa used to do um, it's it's you know it's paid for now you can do it quickly for you know 200 bucks 300 bucks 500 bucks whatever and so um, our, our neighborhoods every the last neighborhood we lived in and this one it's just more and more and more and more houses which it's not a bad thing it's a great thing it's great for you know uh, the, the season but um, Jesus very easily, can get lost and even just added on busyness and added on things in this season. So we purposely want to say, hey, this month of December, this is a big deal. Jesus coming to the earth. And we're going to look at that this morning, uh, the reality that it's a huge deal in the mind of God. And, and yet there's this kind of this, this disconnect with, with our, our culture. And we're going to see that very clearly. Um, the people around you, we live in the Bible Belt. How much more so in the West Coast, California, um, the, North, the Northwest, up in Seattle, Oregon, um, in, in the Northeast, in, in those areas. Uh, so in those areas, just uh, Jesus being the center of it all is ludicrous, right? And so um, we get to celebrate the incarnation, God with us. And so think through that. Just the idea from, from God's perspective, um, Eden, the start, right? You have Adam and Eve, God with them, God with us. That was the intention. That was God's desire. They would see me as God and be amazed by me. I get worship out of that, um, and, and they get me plus all that I've provided. Like, that's a pretty good deal. Like, life, breath, all this great food, these animals, all this beautiful area, it's, it's all there. Plus, we get God himself. That's a good deal. But then sin entered, right? And since that time, since sin and the fall happened, then we've had God pursuing immediately. God goes and does what? Slaughters an animal. 
blood kill to show we need atonement for this sin. They had skins put on of animals. First time, blood, atonement, little bitty tiny picture. Blood, atonement is going to cover your sins. You need this blood and this atonement. From that point on, God is pursuing. And what was his goal? Just to teach them how bad they were, how pitiful you are, how stupid you were? No, no, no. I want to be with you. I really am the greatest thing for you. And, and I'm pr- trying to provide only good for you. I know as you get older as parents um, and you're trying to talk to your kids about different things, you, you just want them to see like, do you really feel like I'm trying to just take good stuff away from you? You know, just like, you know, like here, here's the thing that you'd really, really enjoy. I just refuse to let you have it. No, we only want the best for you. We know that this has all kinds of snares and traps and, and dangerous things. And we only want this for you. That's all God has ever done is provided our, for our good. And yet, Adam and Eve in the garden, and from that point on, God pursuing. And so here, here goes Israel. They're in slavery. What's that a picture of? Sin, right? That's supposed to be the big picture for you. Sin. Oh, we'll turn back to you, God. Sin sure is good. Oh, we'll turn back to you, God. Sin. That's, that's all the Old Testament. Like, repeat, repeat. It just loops. He gets them out of Egypt. How, how do I want you to know me? Remember, how many times does he say this in the Old Testament? Remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. That's my name. Didn't say, hey, you Old Testament people, one day I'm going to shock you and send my son on a cross. They didn't understand the Trinity very well, didn't understand the second person of the Trinity, didn't understand that a, a godly, invisible being at the time is going to take on flesh and then come and die on a cross. Didn't understand all that. Here's how you know me, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make promises, I defeat sin, and I rip you out of slavery and bring you into a new life. That's what we want them to know. Trust in that. Trust in that. Now, he was putting a seed in those Old Testament believers of a future place. And so with Israel, here's this new new land. The big thing with them was the promise, the covenant, and the land. And then there's an ideal of a person eventually, right? A guy who would sit on uh, the, the throne of David. And so in that, God is trying to show them, I want to be with you. Well, hey, what do they do? Set up a tabernacle, a tent, much like this right here, right? So they, they had the original pipe and drape. That's what, the, the reason we do this is we're really God glorifying better than all those huge churches because we do it the right way with God's original design of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, original pipe and drape. I'm joking. And so uh, that's what it was though. And a tabernacle, what was the, the point of that? I want to be with you. Come to the tabernacle. I want to be with you. They build a temple eventually. Man, we're going to make this good for God, right? And and like, what's the point of that? God was not concerned about just the temple, the building, all that stuff. He was going, hey, I want to be with you. God with us. And so then we get to the um, stages of of Old Testament Israel being taken away again because of their sin, taken away, disciplined. And then one day, 400 years of silence, then here comes Jesus. And what's the picture? God with us, God with his people. So the incarnation, in God's view, is a huge, huge deal. And again, if we're not careful, like gifts under a tree, the the Christmas tree, if you do those, uh, the Santa Claus, if you do those, uh, the the, the lights all over, if you do those, um, all these things, and and Jesus becomes really, really small. Um, Ten seconds into eternity. I've worked with college students for about 18 years, but man, this really grabs... Whatever you're living for, I know it's exciting. It's enticing. Teens and college students, 20-somethings, man, 10 seconds into eternity. Car wreck, boom. No one plans. No one gets up in the morning and goes, I'm going to have an accident today, and my car's going to flip and die. Or, or anything that can happen as you get older, health-wise, just boom. 10 seconds into eternity, you're going to realize 
this, this Jesus, this was big. And I bought into the lie of all this other stuff. And so to God, this was a big, big deal. And so Jesus coming was God with us, and that was the first advent, and now we're awaiting the second advent. Um, here's the reality, though. Is there a chance that people celebrate Christmas but do not celebrate Jesus' incarnation? So can you celebrate Christmas and all the season and all the different things but not really celebrate the Jesus of his first coming and his cross and his resurrection? Is there a way that we do that? And I would say, I would suggest that nine out of ten people around you in the Bible Belt, that's exactly what's going on. We get excited about a little time off, maybe two or three days off. We get excited about the gifts, whether that's getting people really good gifts and you're really wanting to please your children and give them these extra things that through the year that you don't really uh, feel like you can provide. Or maybe it's family gatherings. Maybe it's the meals together. Maybe it's the football on TV, the, the bowl times. Maybe it's people, uh, family members traveling in. Maybe for some people, it's just a time just to slow down and just to, to experience the, the, the good gatherings and the fun times. Uh, maybe for some it is just you know go in the lights and traveling around. Usually till this year we would go driving around neighborhoods just looking at the pretty lights and stuff like that. Um, and is there a chance that we miss Jesus in the middle of that? What's the whole purpose of every bit of that? Every bit of it ties back and to God this was a big deal. Um, our our wedding. Um, I remember when we started planning for the wedding, I had no idea. Being from South Saul, like we, I just didn't understand. And so uh, we go to uh, start planning the wedding, and, and I remember Jamie's mom and Jamie had this thing where I had to drive in from um, uh, Salisaw or uh, Fort Smith, and we had a meeting with these people that were going to provide the, the meal, and they, we got to try different meals. So this was like pretty fancy mess to, to me. Like I didn't know that you got to do that. They gave little samples, and you get to choose. And here's what I was wanting to make sure of. That we had um, little Smokies, little, little weenie things with the barbecue sauce. I wanted little Smokies, some sort of nacho dipping stuff. And so they came with their high-end stuff, you know, of like steaks and all this stuff, filet mignon. And all. And like, of course, we quickly turned some of those things down for just chicken and rice. and so. But like little Smokies and, and nachos were not on their deal and wings. And I, that's all I wanted. And I was like, I can't believe they're not doing this. And so we, I didn't understand that that... Here, this all of those things, really the important point for me was just Jamie, right? Like I wasn't really concerned about all the meal, all the prep. That was just one meeting. We had all these other meetings. Um, imagine a wedding, a great event where everything is leading up to that point, but instead of enjoying the beauty, the oneness, the unity, that, that this, there's this person walking down the aisle. I'm going to spend the rest of my life all encapsulated in this person. I'm thankful to God for them, so I'm not worshiping them. But like, here's this person, but the guy doesn't notice her. He's like, God, this is just, man, I love dressing up. Man, everyone looks so good. I just love dressing up and looking good in this suit. And man, I love how everyone else is dressed up. I love the decorations. Man, I love the, the meal that we had afterward. Uh, I love the dancing and the DJ. Man, the DJ did an incredible time. And his wife the whole time just is just wanting to be close and just wanting to be near him. And, and he just keeps looking over her. You'd be an idiot to, to, to look over the prize your spouse, whether that's a husband or a wife, for all the decorations and all the, the themes and all the, the side stuff of the wedding, right? Because all that is, it, it all dissolves, if not for the coming together of these two people. That's what you're celebrating. And so um, all of that stuff, the person who never enjoys the spouse but loves the festivities, you miss the person. 
And that's exactly what's going on in our culture. Uh, we're, we're people that would say that they're believers. We're surrounded by people in the Bible Belt that believe that they are believers. So um, there's an obvious, large incongruence when it comes to Christmas and Easter. A lot of people who don't go to church regularly, but it comes Christmas time, they'll come that one Sunday for Christmas, and then they'll show up um, that one time, they call them Creasters. If you don't know, the Creasters is the name, people. They come for Christmas and they come for Easter, Creasters. And so um, that may have been you growing up. It would be crazy and strange to say that I believe God came in the flesh. It really happened. 33 years he lived on the, the earth. He died on the cross. And I'm okay with all of that. But that just really doesn't have implications on my life. That's a very strange and incongruent way of thinking. That God came, God with us, and saying, hey, eternally I'm wanting to provide a way for you to be with, with me in all eternity. And that just really doesn't matter. I've got other more important things. Um, I've got a lot going on. He just doesn't matter. So in psychology, there's this term called, um, um, people will put it in different terms, but it's dissonance, but cognitive dissonance. So your thinking cognitive, your cognitive mental workings. Cognitive dissonance is anytime that you have um, beliefs or ideas or values and then your lifestyle, the way you actually live, is completely unattached from that. You say you believe these things, but then my actions reveal I probably don't reveal those things. I'm actually um, living for something else. I would say this is what's most important. This is what's the, the focal point of life, but, but really I don't live for that. I live for all these other things. And so there's all kinds of ways that we could look at that. Now, what happens when you begin to live in that without a spiritual understanding is when there's this um, cognitive um, dissonance, I think that I'm like this, I'm not really, I, I, I'm really, really healthy, I'm concerned about my body, I love McDonald's french fries and cheeseburgers and, and 64 ounce drinks every single day, I'm really concerned about my health and my body, I'm smoking and drinking so much and never working out, do you, do you see what happens? I say this about myself, but I don't live that out, lots of examples, people have a hard time dealing with that. So then what happens is in the middle of this, something gets confronted, a doctor or someone just steps in your life like, no, you're not like that at all. Oh, did you think you were this way? No, all of us all agree. All the people around your life, you're not like that at all. And it's like, that's rude. And they're the first ones that kind of help you see this. Well, then there's some stress or anxiety. For Christians, I would say what happens is we're convicted or we're offended. So you have a chance. Someone says, hey, you think you're a really, really generous person. And like we read a couple of weeks ago about, you know, Jesus, like he, he sat in the church building watching and people gave their tithe. He's going, I, I see what you give. I see mainly what you hold back. Remember that? And it's like, I am a generous person. I'm a very generous person. And God's going, hey, shh, I, I know. I see what you're holding back. I feel like I'm a very good Christian. I try to keep all the rules, all this stuff. Here's a need. Here's a person in need or some sort of compassion. Like, I don't have time for them. They probably, they shouldn't have done some things. They're, they're a bad person. I'm a really good person. Jesus comes showing compassion. We don't like that. So either I'm convicted by that or I'm offended by that. No, that's ridiculous. Don't you see all I'm doing? I'm doing it all right. Convicted or offended. And we get defensive in that. And so Jesus come going, hey, you're missing it. Let, let me show you what this looks like living this out. And so that's cognitive dissonance. Put another way. Um, Jesus said this, the, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
were in the Bible Belt. Think through the people around your life that would honor God with their lips, but their hearts, the way that they live, the way they treat people, that the lack of compassion, that the apathy they have about people around them, the, 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 the status levels of like, I'm not like them, so I would never have anything to do with them. All of that, it's nothing like Christ. I think I'm a really good Christian. I'm really trying hard. I'm really good at my quiet time. No one has quiet times like me. I'm like top 1% of quiet times. I'm really good at this. We give our tithe. We, we even go to church consistently. We do. Sometimes God's going, I know. Where's your heart? And again, we can be offended by that or we can be um, convicted and going, man, humble me, Lord. Show me myself. Show me my heart in that. Um, and with this Christmas season, it's very easy to, to, to love Christmas but care less about Christ. Um, over time, this creates stress, anxiety, regret, shame, all those things. Um, for the Christian, hopefully it would lead to conviction and a desire to repent, right? And so um, the people around you, so the reason this is a great opportunity is that most people around us um, would say, I do believe that we're celebrating this because of this Jesus guy. Now, just so you'll know, growing numbers uh, for if you have people under 20 years old, or even some people, if you're 25 and under, there's been a, a big push to get away from the idea of hell. So just know that it's, books are being written, that the, the generation, so the new generation is Generation Alpha. If they're born 2010 to 2024, um, it's Generation Alpha. Generation Alpha and Generation Z are having a hard time with that idea. There's globalization. There's a lot of um, things that we just couldn't see when we were growing up. And so now they identify and they think like, well, how could there be an absolute these people go to hell. These people go to heaven. I can't imagine a hell. And just, just so you kids will know uh, that God is so incredibly loving, but the worst thing possible for a person is to turn away from God and, and to be separated from him for all eternity. But God is so good. God is so phenomenal. Hell is actually a fitting thing for a person who rejects him and his love. And that's hard for us to understand that. We can't even wrap our minds around how long eternity is, but just know that the Bible is very clear and we're not going to change that in like 2030, uh, 2035. Like, oh, you know what? We're, we're older now. Um, there, there couldn't be a hell. Just know biblically that there is a place called hell. And so that is, that is shocking. And so when you think generationally, um, that's got to be something that we've got to help the younger generations understand to hold to some of these biblical doctrines, to some of these things. What I say I believe that there's not a dissonance in that. And there's, it, it's strange, it's weird to have an adult who's intelligent, doing well in life, and saying, yes, I believe Jesus was born this day, but it has no consequences on my life, no implications. And you're surrounded by it. So we don't have to get ticked about it. It's actually a great opportunity. It's a great starting point. It's a great thing. And we'll talk about that later on. So it would make sense to have that conversation with someone. I see that you, know, you appreciate traditions and feasts and shopping and all these things. Um, I'm wondering why you think that we should celebrate this. I, I, I just wonder why you think that we should celebrate Christmas. What is your family? What, what's your story growing up? What did y'all celebrate? Hey, and then they tell you. So how much was Jesus a part of that? And just, just listen to what they say. It's a great starting point to just to kind of rock their world with some different thinking. Like, why are we doing all this? Um, it would make sense if you want to tell me that, yeah, we do all these things and we're involved with all of this extracurricular stuff. Um, and I, I'm just going to say that I, I'm, I'm not worshiping Jesus. That would make sense. 
Like you worship these things and you're celebrating. You, maybe you admire Jesus as a good man, but you're not going to surrender to Christ your whole life. That, that, that's congruence. That like to, to say, hey, you know what? He's not worthy of it. That's congruence. Stop lying to yourself saying that you're a Christian. Stop lying to yourself saying that, uh, no, I'm following Jesus. I'm sure I, I prayed a prayer a few years ago. Stop lying to yourself. That's, that's what we've got to get across to our cultural Christianity is there's incongruence. It would be congruent for you to say, I just love presents. I love all this stuff, spending some money, the meals. Oh, no, I'm not worshiping Jesus. That's what I want to hear you say. Because we can talk then. But when you're in this twofold world, it just doesn't make sense. So Luke 2 brings up this beautiful thing here. And we're going to read through. There's um, some, some verses on the screen there. In Luke 2, this is this, this entrance of God into the middle of this type of situation. Um, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So government, hey, send everyone to your home place where, where you came from, where your family came from. Go back. Why? Why would that be important to count people? It's not the number that's important, it's the money. We know it we want numbers, we want no taxes, right? So that's what they're doing. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Remember the people. So you need to remember that as they're hearing this story. If you were a Jew or someone in this time, you outside of Jews, you knew about King David of Israel. If you're a Jew, that's our man. That, that, that's Michael Jordan. That, that's our guy. And then we're waiting um, for the guy who's going to come and replace David on the throne. So that's a big statement there as you're reading that story. It's called Bethlehem. He was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. So imagine that. You're just out watching your sheep. Um, you're out in this dark pasture, and then this light comes crashing down, and there's angels there. It would be strange for you just to go like, just walk up. Like, you would take note of that. It would be weird, right? It would be strange for you not to take notice of that. And the angel said, fear not, first thing, because I know you're afraid. Uh, they're, they're filled with fear. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Think, think again from Jewish perspective. That's what we've been waiting on. That's what we've heard about. One coming in the lineage of David. One coming um, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the anointed one. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this idea of peace that's coming from God. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
and all who heard it, including us. So this was the story. This is where the New Testament story, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, had a story going on. This is self-revelation. This is scripture going, we were eyewitnesses. So for the first hundred years, it's a crazy story, man. I've been out in the field a lot. I've been watching sheep a lot. No lights, no angels. But you're telling me you were out there one time and this happened. And it just passes along from family to family. It's a crazy story that doesn't fit. It's supernatural and it's God's plan. And all who heard wondered at the shepherds, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you had a plan and that you revealed this plan to us all the way starting way, way back in scripture through the Old Testament. And then it was very, very clear that you sent Jesus. This whole story confirms that you had a saving Christ, a savior for the world. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd help us to understand our own hearts on whether that truly matters or not, whether we're just giving lip service to that. And for those around us, Lord, that, 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 that definitely um, would say that they believe in a God and would definitely say that they're okay with the idea of a God named Jesus dying on the cross. And some who maybe have even prayed a prayer, but there's a complete disconnect from surrendered life to Christ, complete disconnect from following in the costly path of discipleship, a complete disconnect of understanding their sins are to be turned away from and repented and and that those can be forgiven because of the work of Christ, a complete disconnect on all those. Would you help us to be a light in the middle of a world that may be prosperous and be a a light to those who who need this gospel-saving power? We pray that you would do this work in our hearts, and for those around this community. In your name we pray, amen. So the first thing that we want to see there is um, I had these these points from this simple um, idea of good news, great joy for all people. So when you bring up the idea of cognitive dissonance, um, there's a lot of people in the Bible Belt who have a respect for religion. Um, They admire Jesus, but they're not worshiping him. They have respectable moral codes, but they do not worship Jesus. Um, They do not surrender to him. We appreciate the festivities, the decorations, the parties, the meals, the games, um, all of those things of the season, but overlooking the cataclysmic reality that God became man to die for us. And that's what people around us are, are not appreciating. Um, so um, here are the, the main points of this tonight, as um, the, this morning. First of all, just good news, number one, but along with that, we're going to talk about this good news was reduced to something else. Um, and then great joy, but we see also that this great joy was reduced to something else. And then it's also for all people, um, and that has been reduced also. So the first thing um, is just on this idea of good news. So the word there, good news, is euangelion in Greek. And so if you notice that euangelion, it's E-U-A-N-G-E-L, and so angel. And so remember, an angel is just one sent with a message. And so euangelion is one who's sent with this message of good news. And so the word gospel, that's the word that we get, gospel, euangelion. Um, back in Genesis um, 
3. So if you look in Genesis 3, I think we've got a slide there. This is called the Proto-Euangelion. If you go to theological terms, you didn't hear that growing up, right? We probably skipped over this. This wasn't part of the account. Um, But this is the very first time in the scriptures that God made it clear that I've got a way of salvation. I've got a a plan and a redemptive plan. And it's kind of fuzzy, but but it's right there very clear. In, in, in Genesis 3. So this is during God's uh, condemning and God's um, um, just and right um, condemnation of what had happened there. But, but as he's bringing these curses to uh, mankind, Adam and Eve, but also to Satan, in, in 3.13, the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and, and I ate. And then God said to the serpent, so this is Satan, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So right there, this is spiritual war. From this point on, there is going to be spiritual war going on between um, those of, of her offspring, all humanity, Adam and Eve's, but then all the spiritual forces of darkness. There's spiritual warfare going on. Sin is going on. In the middle of the bad news, here, here's the, the little hidden proto-euangelion, the, the gospel. He, who's he? God's given this, this clarity, and then he goes, he jumps to, hey, this is how bad it's going to be, all these other animals. He is going to crush your head. Who are we talking about? Hey, Adam and Eve, Eve's probably like, nah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm out, I'll, I'll be over here waiting for the rest of the spanking or whatever. But Satan knew. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was there. He created Satan. He created Lucifer. He's not blind, he's not an idiot. So when he's, God says to Satan, he is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his foot. Well, the bruising the foot would be a seeming death blow, the cross. You're going to take him down. It looks like that you're going to win, Satan. But it's just a bruise. It's not a death. He's going to rise back up. And in his resurrection, he's crushing your head, ultimately. Sin no longer has power. Um, Hell no longer has power. All the way back in Genesis, God's whispering this. The Old Testament prophets pick up on that. It's ultimate defeat. God places the seed of the gospel there. Um, in, in, first, uh, in first Peter, way towards the end of our New Testament, there's a summary uh, of all that the people and the prophets and all the angelic beings were, were trying to understand about God's redemptive plan. Um, it says, so look at this in verse uh, in chapter one of First Peter. So this is in the New Testament. This is one of Jesus' closest friends, Peter. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, those Old Testament prophets telling in advance about the sufferings of Christ. Did you see that clearly all the time? Remember those places where he talked about that the suffering servant was going to come? That's what they were talking about. The Spirit of Christ was whispering to them. He didn't say, he's going to come on a cross. It's going to be God that's going to die in the flesh. God, God put it in terms that they understood at their time period. They were telling in advance about the suffering of Christ and about the glory that would follow these sufferings. The prophets tried to learn about what the Spirit was showing them, so that they're trying to understand it when those and when those things would happen and what the world would be like at that time. It was shown them that their service was not for themselves, but for you. Who's Peter talking to? People two and three thousand years later. Those Old Testament prophets, they were doing this stuff is for our sake. 
Because now we know about Jesus. We know about his cross. Things uh, to, and I'm sorry, those who preach the good news to you told you these things, that good news, there's that word, euangelion, with the help of the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven, things into which angels desire to look. Um, hundreds and hundreds of verses telling in advance about God's Messiah, his Savior, who would come one day. But nobody understood fully that it would be God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God's Son who would come, and definitely no one understood that God himself would come and die. No one understood that. Um, and if we're not careful, we just go, yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I understand. I just need something a little more practical to work with, though. I just need something more practical in my daily life. So do you see what we've done? We've taken this, this thing that God said was a huge deal, and we've graduated beyond it as old news and not so significant, not so important. And so the gospel gets, instead of being center, it gets marginalized, and it's about either Every week, I would tell you, here's some scriptures. Now, Christian, you go and keep this list. Christian, you better be this way and this way and this way. Feels good. Look how good I'm doing as a Christian. So I'm doing a lot of churches. Instead of the gospel, you can't do it. The gospel says you would never be able to do it. The gospel says that, that Christ is the one who accomplished this for you. You'll never be good enough. It's not about how good you do a few days a week, and then, oh, you had a couple of slip-ups, but you're just going to try harder. The gospel says, no, you would never be able to meet up with this. It's only what Christ has accomplished, and the gospel is what empowers you. So when you are battling sin, you're looking to Christ, and you're being transformed by gazing at him, not on your own ability. And we're still striving after holiness. We're still striving to obey, but it's in the power of the gospel, in the power of the Holy Spirit helping you, not in your good old American, I can do this, we're a strong, pull up your bootstraps mentality. You don't want to face Jesus on that stuff. And so that's what he's getting here. And so it's good news that he accomplished all this. And yet sometimes we go, yeah, I, yeah, I know, on the cross, Jesus, yeah, yeah. But I, I need something more practical. Th three easy ways to raise teens. Four, four points on how to have a successful marriage. Three ways to have a great finances in, in a downsized economy. Man, that, that's something to work with. Give me a couple of Proverbs about ants storing up stuff. That, that makes me feel good because, man, I'm just storing stuff back. Good Christian. We tithe. We're church every week. We're good. And we love that. Man, I love me some Sankey. I love me some Sankey more than I love me some Jesus. Because Jesus says, man, many are weak. And your best efforts, you wouldn't even want me to make a list of what you try to make a list because you would fail it. You'd fail your own list. And I never even gave you this list. It's all in me. And so what a gift that God's going, hey, this is a pretty big deal. So often we reduce good news to a sinner's prayer with no commitment and no life change. I think that what's happened in the last, since 1880s, 1890s, um, Charles Finney was a huge incorporator of this. So Charles Finney comes around the early 1900s and was the first one that all these little churches and all these little revival things would go and like, hey, um, how many hands got raised? How many people come down and they didn't have altar calls back then? How many people did you get and you directed them to come down to an altar and raise their hand and, and repeat this prayer? How many people? Let's count. Some denominations, they love counting. Sometimes counting leads to money. 
We can say we got this many people, so we need this much money, right? And so um, in that, um, some things happened where, and I believe in a good-hearted, and for some of these people, a good-hearted attempt to show that the gospel is free, that was free salvation, what they accidentally did was made it cheap grace. That they, they, they took away the cost of following Jesus. They took away the cost of what God paid for us. So the good news often gets reduced to the sinner's prayer. Uh, at the church we were at beforehand, um, we put on a huge VBS thing, and there's you know, 200 kids there. And all we said was to the, and we had we had planned out. So Monday night, or so Monday, and then Tuesday, and then Wednesday, we were building through this story about all this stuff pointing to Jesus. And then Wednesday and Thursday, Jesus comes and all these things. And we just told the main pastor, like, just, just please don't do the heavy, you know, raise your hand, bow your head thing. And so, because we have a, a, another time period down in the teaching where we're going to say, hey, if some of you are understanding this and you have questions about this, or, or as we've talked about your sin and Jesus being the answer to that, we want to talk with you. So we had three to five, six, seven, eight out of each class. And there's you know, 12, 14 classes that were or maybe 10 or 12 classes that would come through there. And it's this rotating basis. We just said, hey, on the big scale, as all of them are gathered, let's just be careful not to do the quick, hey, just raise your hand if you, if you want this. Because kids are probably not going to see it. And so I walk in back, and we had this, and we had groups um, of, of kids, three and four and five, maybe six, especially some of the older ones that would understand. That was going on downstairs. Well, then to close the thing on Thursday night, sure enough, and I, I walk in the doors, and we're, some of the staff were standing back there, and you, you could tell. This was his generation. This is the way he was raised. This is the way that you do this. And so, and I saw our worship pastor, and they had a big, their sound booth is a lot nicer than our white table where Tyler's sitting. And so they had a, this sound booth thing, and so the stage is up there, and there's all these kids and all these parents. And I walk in the back door, and our worship guy's little boy, he was about five years old. He's sitting, and he's, he's up in this booth way up high, and he's sitting there, and he's just doing stuff, and he's like, I think he actually was sucking his thumb. So he's sucking his thumb, and he's just doing this. He's looking over here. He's not paying attention. And then the pastor went into the, hey, right now, Jesus wants, he needs you to ask him into your heart. He, Jesus wants you to do this. And so if you'll raise your hand right now. And so here's this five-year-old I'm watching, and he's doing sucking his thumb, and he, he doesn't notice. And all these hands went up. 200 kids there, 172 raised their hands. And here's this kid, and he's just like, oh. So he just raised his hand. He didn't know if they're giving out lollipop. He didn't hear what he was talking about, but he just sees a whole bunch of kids raise their hand. So now we get to decipher through 172 kids like him who raised their hand, didn't understand the gospel. Didn't, they, they may have, and may, God could still use what we were teaching in these other areas. And so that's a great example of it's so free, we make it cheap. I've heard of missionary stories about being in different countries. Uh, one of our friends that had done some work in Mexico, um, it was broken language, but there was a very strong, he was strong. He felt like he was the Paul of our day in evangelism. He was going and he, he had broken English. He would corner guys and he would put his hands on them. Hispanic people are kind of smaller, uh, structured people. And he'd put their hands on and put his hand hard on them. He had been taught that you, this is a form of conviction. This is, by the way, Finney, Finney Charles Finney taught this. Put your hand on their head and press, or put your hand and press them down. It makes them, it's, it's pushing them into a physical feeling of submission, and now you're telling them what to do. Repite, repite. So in broken Spanish, repite, repite. And this person would do, and, and, and Hispanics are, are naturally also pretty uh, humble when it comes to like wanting to please people. So they're, see, 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 and smile, even if they didn't understand anything you just said. Just see, see, yes, 
Yes, we run into that here with the Zomis. There's certain things that I've asked, and if there's some broken language barriers, um, then I'm not making anything about race or any kind of ethnicity. I'm just it's it's, it's a language barrier. And, and wanting to serve and be nice, people go, see, see, or, or yes, yes. And they may not have understood clearly what you're asking. And this guy go, repeat that, repeat that. And then they would, they would repeat in, in broken Spanish what that guy said. Count, mark them down, mark them down. Go and grab another person, start pressing on them. So some people finally confronted this guy like, hey, man, this, this is horrific. Do you realize what you're doing? It does horrible work for the missionaries there. And so we, we, we can't make grace cheap. Um, the good news can't be reduced to that. And this message leads to great joy. Uh, this son should produce great joy. It was from God. It was joy from God. It was meant to produce great joy for those who received the message. So that second point, the good news was about great joy. It's not just a side emotion. It was about Christ. The good news of great joy. Think from the angel's perspective. Think through what they were going through. They're up there in heaven watching all this, and they're seeing second person of the Trinity turning into a human form, whatever that looked like, if they got to see all that. Whether it was just like this secret, you know, shielded by these things that they couldn't even see behind the that God was doing, they just all knew something's going on here. So even from their own experience, when they get to talk to the humans, hey, we're telling you there is good news of great joy, and it's going to be for all the people. Just a beautiful thing, even for their own perspective. Even if none of you take this, I'm telling you, this is good news for great joy for all the people. Um, should the reality of Jesus' birth and incarnation bring a level of joy, or is it just as irrelevant as your insurance card in your car? It's nice knowing that that's there one day if I ever need it. But I'm not living for it. I mean, it's just in case of a wreck. Crisis, bad situation. Well, I, I got this card. Does this help? I, 1996, I, I prayed this prayer. What have you been living since 96? I prayed this prayer in 2004. 2004, I, I was at a camp. I, I prayed this prayer. Were, were you changed and fell in love with Jesus? Not at all. How many people are going to stand? Jesus said, clearly, many, many, many are going to come to me on that day in front of this platform. And you say, Lord, Lord. And he's going, don't call me Lord. Didn't we do this, and didn't we do this, and do all these religious actions, which most of us don't even do? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Where was the disconnect? Where, were the, where was the dissonance? In John 15, Jesus makes it clear that abiding is where we get this, this is joy. Uh, if there's no abiding, there's, no, there's not joy. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, so there's this obedience aspect. You will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The joy, Jesus says there, the joy that's in my heart, the full joy that's in my heart, I'm willing to give that to you more and more as you walk in obedience. That, that's a beautiful exchange for a depressed, sad, lonely, anxious world. We've got an answer, don't we? We've got, we've got a great opportunity. Hebrews, uh, a type of joy that it sustains. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that, that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We're looking to Jesus. Not comparing yourself, not looking to other people, not comparing, not looking at yourself, how good I'm doing. You're looking to Jesus, 
2 Corinthians 3.18, that, that by beholding the glory of the Lord, faces unveiled, now we understand salvation, looking at the Lord, gazing at him, you're being transformed. You're not looking at him. You're looking at the world. I'm doing better than them. You're looking at friends. I'm doing better than them. You're looking at other couples. Well, we're doing better than them. That's not beholding the Lord being transformed. You're not being transformed if you're not beholding the Lord and gazing at him. And he says the same thing in Hebrews there. Our God is a satisfied, joyful God. This is shocking for most people. Most people, including Christians, don't view God as a satisfied, happy, joyful God. Most people have a view of God that he's frustrated, disappointed, angry, and vengeful. If I were to say, hey, everyone raise your hand. If, if once you do a really bad sin that you know is a huge no-no, raise your hand if you're waiting for him to come down with that shoe. What does he do? Does he always come down with some, get a flat tire this morning. You're going to wreck your car. I saw what you looked at. I saw what you talked about. That's our view of God sometimes. God is happier and more satisfied and more joyful than any person that you've ever met. Think about that. Happier, more joyful than any person you've ever met. And that is a complete disconnect from the way some people grew up learning about God. If you grew up in a little bit of a legalistic uh, OCD control, a whole bunch of lists, man, you're just waiting. You step out of line, you break that rule. He's there. Do you view God as happy and joyful? Not an ignorant, happy-go-lucky, superficial joy. There are scriptures about God, his disdain for sin, but there are so many scriptures about the joy and the gladness of the Lord. Think about your own, just your own life. Even You take a week or a month of your whole life. You become a Christian. How many times do you fail week one? How many times do you fail first month? What's he doing? Crashing your life, destroying, cutting your legs off, pouring out grace, pouring out grace, pouring out grace, pouring out grace. Just, just think how he does. I'm enjoying you. I love you. This is a beautiful picture. Think of the types of Christianity. How, enjoyful, how, how enjoyable is a life of Christianity when you have this view of God? Now, do, do some people take it too long, too, too far? To make like they, they move God out of the center and move you to the center. Like guy in Tulsa, we're, we're famous for this. Like we are the center uh, of, of God's universe. Like God loves us so much that he forgets about himself to a lot of places in Tulsa. Like we are the apple of his eye. Like blessing, 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 blessing to where we become the exalted one. And that's wrong. But do you see the amount of grace? Sometimes in our circles, we've gone too far to where we don't see God as a joyful God. How do you view God? What characteristics? Um, do you see any connections between your view of God, unhappy, unsatisfied, barely tolerating me? If you have this view that he's just barely tolerating you, oh, I can't stand it. Good grief. I know Jesus died for him. I'm going to have to let him up here, but I, it's going to be miserable. I'm going to be just frustrated the whole time. Such a failure. Man, who, who wants to go to that heaven, right? And yet some people, that's, that's the way they view God. We should be reflections of his joy because God is a God of fullness of joy and gladness. This, this God that does this, uh, Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. Oh, I, I can't take that. I, I don't want that. I can't, I, I'm too bad. You don't understand. I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. I'll take this little corner of heaven where I'm just you know, the, the, the laundry man. 
Significant point is, what might be different if you saw God as delighted and joyful? Do we think God is keenly joyful, excitedly satisfied with his place in the Trinity, with his work of creation, with his work and provision of salvation? Is he keenly joyful and satisfied? Or is he just despising us? So, oh, I'll let Jesus go and die for some of them. We've got to understand the beauty. Um, the reason the angel declared this was great joy is because it came from the very heart of God, an explosion of great joy as he launched his son to fulfill the plan of redemption. So often great joy is reduced to uh, not really great joy, but after I've lived the life that I want to live and do all the things I want to accomplish and all that stuff, at the end, if there is a day of recompense, then, then, then at least I can say, hey, don't you remember that sinner's prayer I did? Not enjoying him, not enjoying Jesus week to week, not even enjoying him on Sundays, not enjoying him in group, not enjoying him in your daily life. He's going to say, many, many have come. They're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, I'm saying, hey, what, are you, what are we playing here? Now you know I'm real. What are we playing here, man? The last one is for all people. This good news is filled with great joy is for all the people. All the way back to Genesis where he, he said, your offspring against her offspring, many people. And he told Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, many, many, beyond what the stars could count. And, and Abraham and Israel were thinking just Israelites and Jews. What have we learned? That the church it goes to not just Jewish ethnicity, but it's to all peoples, all language, all tribes, all nations. Psalm 67, a great one. May God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us. Pause. Contemplate that. That's what slaw means. That your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. That's what people should pause and contemplate. That your saving power, your salvation is spreading to all peoples that your way may be known on the earth to all nations. Let the peoples praise you, worship, O God. Let all the peoples worship you. The people get God as their greatest treasure. God gets global worship. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So joy is tied to God's saving power for all people. Revelation 5. And he went and took a scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. Genesis three, you crushed his head. You were slain and you resurrected from the grave all the way back to Genesis three. You crushed his head. That's why we get to worship. That's why you deserve glory and worship. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. When this is being written, guess how many uh, of the people spoke English? Zero. Zero English speakers. Every tribe and tongue, language, we get in. Thank God for English language. Hey, how many Americans were alive when this is being written? So we're the big boy on the block, right? We're, we're, we're the big ones, right? Unheard of. Been around less than 300 years. Is it great to be an American? Man, it's some of God's biggest graces on us if we don't take that grace for granted. It's a beautiful gift. 
We're not guilty for being Americans, but we don't take it for granted. Every tribe, tongue, nation, language, your blood, your death, you crush the serpent's head. You ransom people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So if Luke's story of one soul, if we go into Luke 15, the lost sheep, do you remember the lost sheep and the lost coin and all those things, the lost son, the three stories? If you remember that story there, it says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Jesus said this, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who have no repentance. Ecstatic joy every time a person is saved. Ecstatic joy. We have an opportunity in a world of people who understand about the points of Jesus, who don't worship Jesus. That's the, the, the point that we're at. Of going, we're surrounded by people who say that they're okay with the idea of Jesus, who don't want to surrender. And so it's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for some of us to go, hey, am I living my life for this Jesus? If Luke's story of one soul saved elicits spontaneous worship, what was it like the day Jesus walked out of the grave? People were confused. What was going on in heaven? So what's Advent? What was it like when this little woman is in this little manger, this poor broken down husband, and, and Jesus is becoming a live human? What kind of joy and celebration, what kind of worship do you think was going on when that went on? Remember the angels come? They're like, I mean, light shines down. That, that, was, just, that, was, a, that's, that was a leaky spot in heaven. There's kind of just light just blowing up in heaven. It's probably just a leaky spot. Then light shone down. Like, hey, I'm telling you, good news, great joy for all people. And it's coming in this little guy right here. And, and we are foolish and ignorant and as stupid as we could be if we, if we go, yeah, I know about that. It just doesn't have any relevance in my life. I got some stuff I just want to do. Just really busy. And after I finish all these accomplishments and do all this stuff in life, to lay that down, some of the craziest stuff. How much celebrating and rejoicing was going on then? There's something greater going on. There's something bigger than Christmas lights and decorations and family gatherings and bowl games. We can enjoy those. But there's something bigger than gifts and purchases and new stuff. There's something bigger than wars in our political landscape, something that sees economic unrest and political unrest and injustices, sees them as nothing. And on the flip side, if things are going great, it sees great worldly victories and times of prosperity as nothing. All those things have not 1% of power over this truth that God sent good news Great joy for all the people in the first advent. And we are in between the first advent and the second. The things we see on the news, the things we see going, they, ha- they matter nothing in the scope of their power over what God is doing. And so you can either get your life in line with that or you can continue to live as if that's just this cognitive dissonant doesn't matter. So the walkaways for us is it's a great opportunity. We've got to show the disconnect to people. Help make the connection. It's a great opportunity for you. So if you hear this today and realize, man, you, you, you know the points about Jesus, but you've overlooked salvation. You're still living for self, a good moral list, but you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ. You've never understood following Christ and being a disciple. You need to really think through how ignorant and foolish and strange it is that you would say, yeah, I believe in a God and I believe he sent his son, but he just doesn't matter to me. You need to really think through that's a foolish way to live. 
It's a great opportunity for outsiders. If you're a true follower of Christ, these realities of the number of people holding false belief around us, it's a great opportunity to be able to show them those things. And it's also a great opportunity for renewal. This Advent season could be many days of God stoking the fires of your heart. If you realize that there's some coldness of your heart toward these treasures, maybe some forms of Americanized accepted idolatry taking place, it's a great time to turn back to him for renewal. We have the opportunity to turn back to this God of good news and great joy for all people. In Advent, he has come, he accomplished his work, and he is coming again. So let me pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper.